Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. Today we're thinking about monsters. We're thinking about freaks, and we're thinking about beasts. These words are often thrown around, but what do we really mean when we use them? What is a monster, and why are they so central to our narratives irrelevant of genre? Like many of the issues we discuss on this podcast, the idea of monstrosity features built-in sexism. Male and female coded monsters are often given different characteristics which tend to be linked to social norms around their gender. But before we go into detail, deconstructing this uneven gender representation within the monster community, let's take a look at the basics. So, ladies, what do we mean when we say monster? I have the uh, the authority on all things. So, uh, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, originally, uh, monster means a mythical creature which is part animal and part human, or combines elements of two or more animal forms and is frequently of great size and ferocious appearance. Um, But later on, more generally, it means any imaginary creature that is large, ugly, and frightening, which I think is really interesting. And and when we get more into the discussion, I think um, certainly the more modern version of that interpretation is, is really something that's interesting and we should talk about. But when it came to me thinking, what is a monster? I immediately just went fear personified um, because monsters are anything that we're afraid of made real, air quotes real, um, into a kind of physical entity. Um, so, you know, you can, I guess they're metaphors. Um, kids, monsters under the bed, it's whatever they're afraid of or they, they don't know. It's just whatever we're scared of. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, and only just to add that I think um, it's a monster is very much the personification of the shadow self. So the dark side to us all in the sense that Hyde was to Jekyll. You know, the parts that we like to pretend don't exist, um, but if given half the chance, uh, like to come crawling out at night and terrify ourselves and everyone else. So, yeah, I think it's... Um, Otherwise, I would really agree with you. And I think what's very interesting about the, I think it's the first definition you read out was, um, and I think we'll touch on this later, was um, the inclusion of the word ugly as part of the official definition for monster. Um, Because Mm -hmm. as we'll touch on later, I think um, monsters, especially in the more metaphorical sense, do not have to be considered um, hideous. I wanted to to sort of, think about words that often go along with monster as well. So things like unnatural, repulsive, abomination, you know, because some of sometimes when we talk about monsters, it's not just about fear, but it's also about disgust. Like it's something that makes us recoil. Um, and I think that's, that's very interesting in terms of how we use the term and how that plays out, you know, because say if we go back to the, you know, the idea that this is, say, our fears, it's not just that we're afraid of it. We are 
giving something that we're afraid of it's almost like a, a power thing like to take the power of, away from whatever we're afraid of it has to be ugly and disgusting and ugh, you know and i yeah i think that's quite an interesting thing that those two seem to be linked quite closely well when i was thinking about what made monsters and i was thinking right back at the very beginning and obviously as we say things have changed a little bit but certainly originally i'd say there were the three e's exaggerated explanatory and or exemplary. So they were exaggerated. They had something about them that was really over the top. It might be their ugliness or in contrast, we're going to talk about later, they might be absolutely beautiful. Um, you've got the idea of a werewolf, which is just a wolf ramped up till the knob drops off, excuse the pun. Um, and then you have sort of explanatory. So they can be sort of used to explain your fears, to explore them, um, to kind of combat them and put them into a, a literary form that you can then learn from. Um, but they can also be exemplary. So they can be warnings like the perfect one I always love um, is Jenny Greenteeth, who was made up as a water fairy in, I think it was the Tees. There's a couple of them around. And the idea was if you go near the water, Jenny Greenteeth will get you. And she was an example of what would happen to kids if they played near water and they'd have fallen in they'd got drowned and it was kind of a way of explaining the dangers in a way that small kids could appreciate and they then kind of take on their own format and there's always somebody willing to try and terrify an adult with the childhood fear and to a certain extent you know we carry our childhood fears with us all the time so I think that does feed into monsters later as well. You're absolutely right about carrying our fears with us uh, as we're adults I mean for me I am definitely still terrified of going to the toilet for fear of being eaten headfirst off it by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Uh, thank you, Jurassic Park, for nothing. But you live alone. <laughs> I, I live alone. That's the thing you take from that. Not that, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rexes are extinct or... <laughs> no, the point is, I'm not sure how you're coping every time. <laughs> Do you take your cat to the toilet in case, you know... Uh, you know, sometimes. <laughs> How would the cat save you? Would you like feed the cat to the Tyrannosaurus first? Well, it, either it's a distraction, but that's really mean. I was thinking that it could warn you. Right, here's <laughs> when the, the Tyrannosaurus is coming. Yeah. I feel like there might be other warning signs. <laughs> well, I was more worried by the fact that I was just talking about using them as, as examples to warn children. And I'm like, <laughs> what have Megan's parents been telling her? She doesn't want to go to the toilet for fear of Tyrannosaurus Rex. And then she went to Jurassic Park. I'm like, oh, that makes more yeah, sense. Yeah, So, I mean, do you guys agree? Do you think that monsters exist in fiction as a sort of warning? Or do you think there's more to it? Do you think they're there maybe to thrill? Do you think one of the things I thought about was that at the beginning they were there to warn a lot and to thrill a bit. And now I kind of feel like they're there to thrill a lot and just warn a little bit. Mm, I agree completely. I don't think monsters as a warning uh, is a definition that's really been carried too far into common parlance and common understanding, um, maybe because we don't use them so much in the same way to frighten children, um, because children are more likely to be like, oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not I'm not a kid anymore. You know, I don't need to have this sort of... Be because in a way, using monsters to tell children not to do something is a sort of way of talking down to them rather than actually just giving it to them straight, you know, like there are bad things in this world and, you know, 
it's you don't need a, a metaphorical monster to to tell you what those are. What about when we were discussing all this? Lucy mentioned the Odyssey. What about that? What are the purposes of monsters in that? Because they're not really to warn small children. So, do you think there's more of a thrill factor there? Well, yeah, I think the monsters are there as trials in the same sense that you know Hercules had to overcome. Um, certain trials to prove his heroism and I think the same way that Odysseus is part of his journey um, as a as a as a kind of Grecian hero as the best of the Greeks so you know if there weren't any monsters for him to overcome um, I think it would be and also um, because of course you know the Iliad and and the Trojan War is such a massive part of of like Homer and and that kind of whole narrative um, the war is very much you know that's a kind of war between men and men and women and it's a very mortal thing but of course greek mythology was such a powerful force that i feel like they the monsters came very much from that element and that without um you know such a driving mythology um maybe they would you know the odyssey might not include so many kind of supernatural elements to it yeah the odyssey is kind of like the ancient Greek macho action film. Yeah, yeah, it's pr- pretty much. I mean, it's even got like the the beautiful witch on the island and the, you know, who keeps the man there away from his true love. So you're saying it's kind yeah. of the ancient Greek edition of, say, 300 in our modern day parlance <laughs> with Gerald Butler and uh, Lane Heddy. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to go more uh, pedestrian than that and just say it's like, you know, mission impossible <laughs> because it it is literally just a kind of uh, as lucy was saying you know proving himself to be the best of them um and often you know th- films like taken or any of those you know and i love these two uh things like die hard die hard's a good example because it all comes down to one man to overcome all of this you know and it's just uh, problem after problem after problem. Um, you know, Odysseus's problems are slightly more monstrous or supernatural, but they are still there, as you said, for that thrill, for that tension to, to you know, oh my God, how is he going to get through this next one? Or, you know, how is he going to make it this time? Um, that I think is very similar to those kinds of stories that we have now um, in in a traditional action film. Yeah, with the Odyssey, it's less monsters of the imagination and more monsters of the actual monster variety. <laughs> yes, well. But that's because the gods were involved. You know, if you get the gods involved, I mean, what's like, I love that scene from Circe where, um, you know, it's her sister who gives birth to the Minotaur and she's just like so yeah. pleased that she's done it. She's yeah. like, oh, this is the best thing that's going to be in the stories and stuff. And it's like, it's a hideous monster. <laughs> so I wondered when we talk about obviously them having a warning element at the beginning and not so much now, I did wonder whether one of the things that might be the same throughout history is whether they're used as a warning of societal norms. So I was thinking about the Odyssey and how he gets tested, uh, particularly by Cersei. I know she's not a monster, but the idea that you've got all of these things that he's tested for and he still wants to go home to his wife. And I was thinking of the most recent series of Doctor Who, which had Orphan 55, and they had some terrible monsters in that that turned out to be humans, and they were 
they were made this way because they hadn't followed climate change rules and the whole planet had just disintegrated and everybody had been turned into monsters. And that obviously reflects a changing environment in today's issues that we deal with. And you just need to look at zombies that have changed over time depending on people's fears. So do you think monsters are a really good way of kind of taking bigger and wider issues like climate change, like marital status and fidelity and things like that, and sort of taking them and using them either as a warning or maybe as um, something exciting? Or what do you guys think? Well, I know Lucy was saying that we don't use them as as forms of warning so much anymore, um, especially with, you know, telling stories to children and so on. But I do think that they still are definitely um warnings but again coming from that the fear of the unknown and i think some of it is to do with where we are technologically now so for instance you know mary shelley and frankenstein you know that was about those fears of of people putting electricity through dead people and bringing them back to life you know and uh, godzilla was born out of the fear of the damage from nuclear weapons and all that kind of thing so i think now, you know, we don't have as much kind of new, amazing, frightening medical jumps in technology like, say, you know, electricity and all this kind of stuff. So I think there is kind of a different, there's a different approach to it now. We are, I think, more bitter, more cynical, uh, all this kind of stuff. So the the fears that we have now are bigger. So I do think that potentially something like climate change is definitely out there to be something monstrous now. But I also think that given our the expansion of our horizons, we have come across different kinds of monsters. So, you know, thinking about science fiction, you know, aliens are often kind of monsters, the the sci-fi version of monsters. And Again, you know, it's that kind of fear of what's out there. What are we going to meet? And be careful when you approach them. You never know what's going to happen. But I also think that aliens are really interesting because the ones who are immediately presented as a monster, uh, aggressive, those kinds of things, they're generally quite ugly or grotesque and, again, modelled on things like insects, so things that uh, many people find repulsive. And again, I find that really interesting. But I do think that our, as our fears um, and con- anxieties shift with what's happening around us, so do the kinds of things that we perceive as monstrous. Oh, I think that's completely right. And uh, while you were talking there um, about, you know, like, what are we afraid of? Nuclear fallout, um, genetic experimentation. <laughs> I was thinking of um, black sheep, you know, <laughs> like... I saw that film um, kind of as a joke, really, went to cinema at like midnight. And yeah, I know it's like a massive piss take, but at the same time, it does something really interesting, which is like taking um, something we're deeply afraid of and applying it to something we're not at all afraid of, like a little fluffy lamb. Um, And that's really interesting that, you know, something like the fear of, you know, a genetic um experimentation can breed a monster from something that we would never in a typical environment find monstrous 
It's quite true. I never, ever thought I'd see a scene where about two dozen sheep rampage and kill and eat several TV reporters. That is a really, <laughs> a really good step towards quality fiction, I feel. I suppose if we're thinking about warnings, um, I can't remember the, the name of the guy. It's been so long since I watched it. But the guy who is actually doing the genetic experimentation has a rather um, interesting approach to sheep rearing and being a good farmer <laughs> so whether there's an element of you know actually that that kind of people being in charge of genetic mutations are probably not a good thing but it does kind of lead on randomly and I never thought I'd have a segue from black sheep into Hannibal Lecter it does lead on to the idea of humans as monsters because when I was thinking about monsters and things that scare me Hannibal Lecter is really terrifying and is regularly called a monster um but there's a significant difference i feel between the speculative fiction style of monster and a horror film that involves a human as a monster so do you think it's just a physical difference is there any elements of the the mythical monster in the human monsters that we see portrayed in fiction and movies and things like that well, I just think this is a really interesting question when applied to Frankenstein, because I saw the National Theatre's production um, a couple of days ago, and it just reminded me how fucking amazing the book is, considering it's written by 19-year-old Mary Shelley. Um, but it's really interesting because, of course, you do end up asking yourself, who is the real monster? Is it Frankenstein or is it his monster? Um, and the term monster becomes kind of like a... It, it, it's, it just becomes kind of very weighted because you, you don't really, you know, it, you feel like it introduces an awful lot of questions like, um, you know, are monsters born or are monsters made? Um, and I think there's a certain argument here, particularly when you're looking at Frankenstein's monster, is to say that he wasn't born a monster. It was society that imprinted their own ideas of monstrosity onto him um, because, you know, as the the kind of the guy who befriends him at the beginning, um, who's blind and he can't see him, he can't therefore imprint his idea of a monster because, you know, obviously you were talking about the definition of monster being ugly. He cannot see ugliness. Um, he can only see kind of what's inside that matters. Um, but I just thought it was really interesting when you think, when we, we say something like Frankenstein's monster and then people these days kind of get confused between who is Frankenstein and who is the monster. Very often you get the mistake that people say, oh, it's Frankenstein referring to the monster. And I thought that that's really interesting, blurring the boundaries between creator and created. Well, I thought that was a really interesting idea that you mentioned changes in society. And moving on from Hannibal Lecter and Frankenstein to the Bible, which is clearly a very important move to make, um, I once remember asking a Christian friend of mine, um, why do you have an eye for an eye as the lesson in the Old Testament, and then turn the other cheek in the New Testament. And bless her, she had to go and think about this for a while because, you know, I'd posed a question that no one had asked before. And she she wrote me a really wonderful reply and it was really thought-provoking. But the one thing I took away from it, which I think applies here, is that the society within the Old Testament and the New Testaments were very different. And at the beginning, they were just worried about, please don't just kill each other. Just, you know... Just do it if it's necessary, if it's needed for revenge, be proportionate, that kind of thing. But then when they got more sophisticated, it was then a case of, well, actually, you know, don't 
try and kill each other. That's definitely not the way to go, guys. You need to turn the other cheek and be forgiving and kind. That's what our society is, is for. But you couldn't say that at the beginning because they were just a little bit too primitive, a little bit too um, gung-ho kind of thing. It just wasn't there. It was society developing. And I now wonder if we've kind of done something similar. Um, and we have gone away from the idea of black and white, monster and human, and gone, actually, you know what, guys? There are monstrous qualities within the humans around us. It is it is unnatural, but it can still be part of nature. So it's taking that leap from something that's really terrible and other and unnatural and horrible to going, well, you know what? It is still possible to get something that is monstrous within society, and we need to guard against that, and we need to recognise it, and we need to understand it. So I wondered if perhaps it was society evolving and learning to recognize monsters within the community rather than saying ostracizing the monsters and saying oh they're definitely out they're nothing to do with us they're definitely not human mm, like monsters in the community says to me that we're judging it by deeds monstrous deeds rather yes. than monstrous appearance um because obviously we're not you know most of us don't see typical traditional monsters walking down the street every every day but they're hiding behind human faces these days so i think that's and that's that's really interesting that we kind of you're saying that we have become a more i hesitate to use the word civilized society but i see you know perhaps we are a bit more advanced in um and maybe we have a greater ability now to have time to look at ideas of empathy and ethics um than those societies did back then um so you know and we have a kind of greater facility for it so actually it would make sense then that the idea of monsters and monstrosity becomes more subtle and it has and it takes on a kind of wider more metaphorical definition can i loop back to what you were saying earlier lucy about uh, frankenstein's monster sure because this is this is what's really interesting to me so a monstrous human, you know, regardless of whether it's in speculative fiction or not, you know, it's, it's it's what's inside. It's talking about the inside of the creature, person, whatever, rather than the outside, which is kind of how a lot of traditional, traditionally the word monster was applied. And I think that's a really interesting one because when you can see something going back to Frankenstein where, you know, he looked monstrous, but he wasn't a monster to begin with. It was what he learned from other people. And, you know, I'm going to bring out the philosophy degree again. I feel like I've been doing this a lot lately. It's great. Um, no, do it. <laughs> so <I'm> gonna... <laughs> so uh, Rousseau, um, he was a wonderful philosopher, uh, in the social contracts, he uh, basically says, man is born free, but he is everywhere in chains. And this was about the idea that human beings have the ability, you know, we're born with that blank slate and we can be anything, but society is what turns us into our chained beings. It, it, it creates us in a sense. So Frankenstein, you know, is he even responsible? Sorry, Frankenstein's monster. Is he even responsible for the kind of the later bad deeds that he does? Or, you know, does society take that, mantle from him and similarly i would say you know it's really interesting and and i think later we'll get on to talking a little bit about you know the the difference between the external versus internal kind of monstrosity but that is absolutely where it comes down to for human monsters we are it, it's 
we're bad people. But then again, bad is defined by the society and that same society that probably turned them into that person that would you know, do those bad things in the first place. So I think that's that's a really interesting way to look at it as well. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that's a really interesting one to apply to, a completely appropriate one to apply to Frankenstein because um, the whole story asks, you know, as we were saying before, like kind of who who is the villain here? You know, is it Frankenstein or is it his monster? If I had to come down and I would say Frankenstein because, you know, like watching it again, you realise that he's a, the monster's, he's a baby, you know, he's he can only um, learn from you know, he, he imprints on what comes from around him. And if he's shown kindness, he becomes kind and learned and gentle. And the minute he is shown ugliness and intolerance, he becomes ugly and intolerant in his actions towards others. So I I, re, I do I agree with what you're saying about um, the importance of society um, and the role of society in creating monsters. But then you have to ask, if Frankenstein shows his monster only cruelty and unkindness, then how has he become cruel and unkind? You could almost keep going backwards and backwards until you figure out who the original monster was. God. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Bringing it back to the Bible again. (laughs) So thinking about um, inside and outside and humanity um, in particular. Let's go back to where we started with Megan's OED definition of someone who is ugly and monsters being synonymous with ugly. So whether it is a person or a creature becoming a monster, they are usually made ugly. So think of the line in Disney's version of Beauty and the Beast, who could ever learn to love a beast? It is pretty much a taken in fiction that ugly is monstrous and unlovable. So let's think about how this plays out with male monsters and female monsters, Um, because obviously appearance and attractiveness is something that is absolutely inbuilt within our society, particularly when it comes to women. So do you think the female monsters are naturally more attractive (laughs) than the male monsters, as you would expect in society? Or do you think they're equally ugly? I mean, where do you think it goes with that kind of thing? Before we get too far away from Frankenstein, um, I thought what was very interesting is when they talk about um, the pact about creating a bride or, you know, a companion for the monster. But when Frankenstein set out to bring life to this creature, he clearly didn't care what it looked like. And he knew that he was making a monster, effectively. And he even says he's ugly. But the minute they start talking about making another one, a, a female one, oh, right. Well, suddenly she has to be beautiful. She has to be graceful. She has to have the perfect face and the perfect body. And it even goes so far as to say she must be a goddess. Like, it climbs higher and higher until they, they, they're talking about creating a goddess. And it's like, well, this is really interesting. Why did Frankenstein not set out to create a god or a perfect Adam, you know, a perfect being? Why suddenly, when it's a female form, must it be beautiful? I always thought that the second monster or his his idea for the second one was that he'd made mistakes with the first one and he was going to rectify them. Um, and that 
the second one would be beautiful because he knew kind of where he'd gone wrong in the first instance. So she was kind of a, a refinement. But I do see your point that it is the monster himself who says she must be all these things, doesn't he? So we, mm. Well, and then Victor encourages yeah. him. Yeah. But you do kind of wonder whether he's just kind of going, oh, well, you know, it, 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 that scarring around the head doesn't look great. You know, maybe next time I'll do it around the scalp so you can't see it. And, you know, and I'll give a long hair so that you can't see the bolts in the neck, that kind of thing. Um, and whether, you know, that was a reflection of his art. I, I mean, I am clutching at straws a little bit here. That could be one way to look at it. But I think you're right. I think it is basically when it comes to, you know, creating something from scratch, then the, the woman has to be beautiful. Um, but I was, I was also thinking that in ancient Greek in particular, I found that the female monsters are very female. Like you always see harpies there with their, their big dangling pendulous breasts and things like that. Um, whereas when was the last time you saw a penis on a minotaur? It's, you know, the representations of them are very different and you can't get more male than a minotaur. Maybe a, a centaur, I suppose, could be another one. But again, it's never nat- naturally shown with the necessary equipment and the greeks and the romans weren't you know shy about that kind of thing um but it seems that when they made their female monsters they really wanted to emphasize they were female whereas when they made the male monsters it was kind of like well yeah they're kind of male but not really yeah and i'd agree because you know when medusa is um punished by because she's raped by poseidon and athena instead of publish uh punishing poseidon punishes her instead because that's the patriarchy, yay! Um, so she turns her into a monster. And what I found really interesting is, of course, that Medusa's monstrosity is focused in her face, the face that got her raped in the first place. You know, the face that if you look at, you turn to stone. The hair, her beautiful hair, is snakes. So it's actually her... I feel like, and this may be applied to to other female monsters, the, the focus of their monstrosity becomes, you know, is very much linked to their female beauty. And it's a kind of perversion of it, almost as if we're punished for, you know, females are punished for female beauty. I also kind of feel that we're punished for being ugly. And I know it's not monsters, but think of the unnatural. I've been doing a lot of reading around witches and how like the minor blemishes, being old, being limping, having a wart on your face, an obvious one, you'd be punished for being ugly as a woman and be like, oh, she must be a witch because she's got all these things wrong with her. And I almost feel like there's kind of two ends of society. You're either punished for being too beautiful or you're punished for being too ugly. There's there's this middle range that is perfectly acceptable. Yeah, I think that's absolutely on point. And things I'm thinking about were... Uh, monsters like sirens and succubi it's it's that whole thing about how ooh, we really want women to be beautiful but then when they're too beautiful they use their beautifulness to lure us in and they're they're wily and dangerous and yeah evil uh you know we can't we men can't possibly be held you know responsible for what we do when they're that beautiful they must therefore be evil monstrous creatures tricking us uh yeah, so I definitely think there's an aspect of that. I also kind of found that the manner of their monstrosity was particularly gender-related. Uh, so I've paid more attention to the female monsters. And I was just thinking that a lot of monsters in certainly ancient Greek and Roman times were built around this idea that they were 
suicidal brides or they were women who were unable to have their own children so they went around and stole everybody else's or they were women who were particularly lascivious and then were killed and came back to to continue it or they were particularly alluring there seemed to be very very gender related characteristics to the monster whereas werewolves and um, minotaurs and to a certain extent vampires, uh, ghouls, they all just kind of went out and did their thing. And it was monstrous, but it wasn't particularly assigned to male or female. It was the sort of thing you might do either way. I'm not sure if I'm explaining it very well, but I did kind of feel that the female monsters, certainly in the past, were very focused on female traits, whereas the other monsters were kind of just like general unpleasantness that wasn't particularly masculine. I think you're right. I was just thinking the only um, exception to that that I read recently was Scylla of Scylla and Charybdis fame. Um, her being, um, she was a nymph who, at least as far as Madeline Miller tells it, a nymph who had turned into a monster because um, Cersei revealed her true nature. Um, and she really does turn into a hideous tentacled beast um, with a ravening maw. So, um that was a really interesting um, and quite, I feel like a fairly unique example, actually, of, um, you know, a, a definitely a female um, monster who became monstrous in a very non-gendered way. It's interesting that you mention Scylla as kind of like being big and tentacled and kind of like rah and out there. I tend to find a lot of the female monsters, certainly um, thinking about particularly British folklore, we talk about Jenny Greenteeth and things like that. They're all kind of cunning and lurking and thinking again, and I'm going back to the Minotaur and werewolves and things, they just kind of roam the place and and if you encounter them that's it but i often found with female monsters that it was an element of trickery involved and deceit which you don't necessarily get with the either non-gendered or the sort of more masculine monsters um and you particularly if you think about um lamias undines mermaids all that kind of thing they're all about luring men and there's an element of of cunning there and just almost advanced planning but almost this sense of impotency that they can't really act against men or women unless the men or women are compliant first whereas other monsters just tend to rip you to pieces if they come across you i thought that was quite an interesting idea that even in the monster world those ones that are identified as being very female still don't have a lot of agency they still have to rely on people coming to them and going with them and tricking them and deceiving them to death rather than just ripping them and tearing their heads off it's a really good observation and I think uh, the low cunning is very much um continuing part of um sort of insults that are leveled at women you know in a in a kind of really cruel way like you know that we are cunning creatures who get what we want through deceit um and I I think that's interesting that it's carried over into mythology and and we see it in you know cropping up in monsters and I think we touched on this um, the kind of the deceitful part, and when we were talking about um, virgins and villainesses as well, that, that and actually, I think we talked about mythical monsters being. Um, I think we had an episode on on female mythical uh, monsters, and I think we talked about that as well. That there is this element of um, cunning and deceit, um, as opposed to you know something like the Minotaur, which just uses violence and aggression and it's exactly the same kind of way that maybe we've been gendering men and women throughout all of time. Well I also thought it was an interesting reflection 
of what we've touched on previously about the way men and women solve problems as well. You tend to get the men in the action here is they go out and they are the ones that have all the guns and all the car chases and stuff like that. Whereas if you tend to get a female hero, they tend to be more thinky um, and they tend to sort of plan and outwit them mentally. I know we've touched on that before and I thought it was just quite interesting that that was, you know, the attributes you had, whether the woman was the hero or whether she was the monster. It was still this idea of of using your brain rather than using your brawn um, or any other aspects. Yeah, completely. It's definitely been carried over, hasn't it? I would like to circle back, if that's okay. <laughs> How to... dare you? <laughs> back to the Bible again. No, not the Bible, but because we we started this and we got sidetracked onto the gender stuff, which, you know, is totally our thing, so that's fine. <laughs> but I wanted to talk a little bit more about kind of the, the ugliness aspect and just kind of flagging how damaging that is. And obviously, you know, it's interesting when you look at the etymology of the word monster and back in like 13th century France, it was, you know, uh, most, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Apologies. You know, I'm Australian. So the accent's even worse. Um, <laughs> meaning, you know, it, it meant disfigured person or misshapen being. And I think this is, this is really harmful because a lot of kind of the discussions around monsters and monsters when they appear in narratives, whether or not it's a speculative fiction one or not, they're, they're often kind of deformed. They are really ugly. And it just encourages in the real world. Well, I don't know, you know, which fed which initially, but I think the fact that it keeps that ugliness attribute stays there is so damaging now for people who feel that they they aren't kind of the ideal beauty if they have um you know physical deformity or you know just think about like the elephant man that he was a real man but people did call him the elephant man because they found him disgusting or other and you know it's I found it really interesting because I was, I was reading up about this, you know, before I was doing my homework. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> but in medical terms, though, it's not in fashion anymore because of the pejorative associations, but it is considered a medical term to call something a monster, which means a fetus, neonate or individual with a gross congenital malformation. And there's so much in there in the language which general generally people laymen will connotate with really negative and unpleasant ways of describing people and i think that's really unfortunate and i think we did cover this a little bit in terms of when we we're talking about villains and and especially when we spoke to marissa lingen um about uh, representing people with disabilities and how that's often done with a villain and you know their physical deformity is cast as a kind of reflection of their ugly soul and that is so so harmful and I think also that like monsters I think we've, we've mentioned a little bit you know the beast is the perfect example you know his ugliness is given to him as a curse it's to teach him a lesson because now you look the way you are inside and I, I get what they're trying to say, you know, in terms of the positive aspect of 
you know, it's what in, what's inside that counts. You know, if you're beautiful inside, it doesn't matter. But on the flip side of that, I think it has a really detrimental effect to society that we continue to use these narratives where these creatures or, or villains are physically ugly, air quotes, and and I just, yeah, I'm not really sure where I'm going with that, but I just think it's really important to flag how potentially damaging this Oh, I absolutely is. agree. And I mean, I said before on this podcast that I wrote an article for Tor.com about the fabulous George Lucas film, Strange Magic, and how it was so different from Beauty and the Beast and from Shrek, because the main guy who started out as a villain and then became the hero was what you would call ugly. I think he was supposed to be something like a Christian praying mantis and a grasshopper. And at the end, he didn't change. It was just he kept his his appearance and he fell in love with the fairy princess and they kiss and they have a little duet. And that's something you don't get in all the previous ones. So in Beauty and the Beast, as we were saying, it's so damaging because the beast is, as Megan said, punished with ugliness and he's only true and happy again when his inner beauty shines through sorry you can't see my air quotes and he becomes beautiful so he can marry the beautiful princess and in shrek you have one bit where you've got obviously the princess and she chooses to be ugly and then later you can't have shrek in shrek 2 you can't have him being handsome and her being ugly it's just like there's no way that the monster and the pretty people can live together they either live together as pretty people or they live together as monsters but in Strange Magic, they turned that around and that was the first time I'd ever seen it and it was in a kid's movie. And it was just so wonderful and refreshing going, you don't have to change and love is love irrelevant of what you look like. And I know it's not strictly a monster, although I suppose it depends on the horror movie you watch. But again, thinking about witchcraft, um, particularly in the witchcraft craze when it came around, you had things like maybe an old woman had had a crossword with a farmer and the farmer's best cow stops giving milk and there was that kind of evidence. But a lot of the evidence was, can you find a wart or something ugly on their body? And the main evidence was how you look and your appearance. I'm thinking about woodcuts at the time. You've got witches who are really ugly and again, full of the pendulous breasts. And then wizards who throughout the centuries and throughout fiction and literature have always kind of maintained this more genteel kind of approach and they're very you know sort of old but they're old and respectable you never kind of get that with witchcraft the witch has for a long long time been ugly and that has been her main defining feature so you know i think you're absolutely right that it is terrible that monsters are associated with physical deformities and i think as a society we're only just starting to come away from that and are saying it's okay to be air quotes ugly by society standards and to be happy and to be the hero and to be loved for who you are. Yeah, it's the same way that, you know, the the term fat is uh, being used in a negative way to and usually to describe bullies or unpleasant people, um, you know, and it's I think it, that's the same kind of thing that, you know, we pick words that, um, you know, to fit undesirable personalities that um that go against society's vision of what is normal and what is perfect and what is good and i think that this is all part of a much bigger discussion that i think is being had 
um, as Charlotte said. I think we are kind of at least uh, people are talking about it and they're aware of it and they're aware that, you know, their use of language can be quite damaging. Um, but, you know, as long as we we have a, a consciousness of it, then we can start kind of looking at ways, you know, not to to go down those paths and to keep, you know, perpetrating the same stereotypes. So if we agree that even in the Oxford English Dictionary, that a monster is ugly and that is a main part of its description. We were talking earlier about sirens um, who are indescribably beautiful, um, but are still monsters. And I suppose to a certain extent in these days, vampires have gone from the really ugly, shrunken things that they were in history to beautiful, elegant creatures who are the most wealthy, who are like playboys or play women um and has seems to be a different type of monster so do you think being beautiful changes the concept of being monstrous or how they're a monster and do you think there's any difference between how the genders are represented like the beautiful female monsters and the beautiful male monsters well the one thing that jumped out at me when you were talking about the the kind of vampires and the shape that particular change is um is that we perhaps equate um, beauty and, you know, you talked about their kind of playboy lifestyles. So obviously they live in beautiful houses and they have full of beautiful, expensive furniture um, and throw lavish parties. All of this is, these are beautiful things that, you know, aesthetically pleasing things. So the kind of link I'm seeing here is that a beautiful monster seems to be a product of a more you know that they they possibly implies a kind of higher sort of um sophistication so you know you were saying saying vampires going from shriveled horrible little kind of things that kind of suck blood and stuff to you know the concept of the vampires we see it now sometimes they won't you know um, suck your blood sometimes they'll play you they'll string you along and that actually it's all part of an elegant game it's all become extremely sophisticated and i wonder whether the idea of beauty is tied into the idea of sophistication okay i'm gonna take your sophistication and bring it down a notch so vampires vampires are sexy even when they were weird and shriveled and whatever they were sexy the whole, like, Dracula, Carmilla, like, they are sexy stories. They're all about lust and hidden desires and, you know, maybe it was about casting them as, as so-called ugly because they were something that you shouldn't want and therefore, you know, they, they're disgusting but some for some reason you still want it. And maybe we're just a little bit more prudish now, you know, we if we are going to be made to want a monstrous thing, it's got to at least be beautiful. But ultimately, it's about sex. And I think we have less imagination these days. And we are ruled by airbrushing and Hollywood figures and, you know, women who don't eat. And, you know, the the whole six pack thing on men, which I don't understand, bring back the 90s, where men look like real human beings on television. But I, I just think it's about sex. Now, you see, I would disagree there because although I cannot for the life of me remember the name of it, I know that there is a vampiric creature that hangs from from a tree by its toes and drops on you when you fall asleep 
on the tree underneath, underneath the tree when you're going on like a long journey. And I, I challenge even Megan to find sexiness in the illustrations of those creatures that I've seen. <laughs> I kind of feel that it's gone, you know, you're right, Dracula, Carmilla are amazing. They are very sexy and, you know, Gary Oldman all over again and whoever else you want to, to throw at that. But yeah, so I kind of feel that that was the turning point. And before that, they were kind of all creepy and, and ooky and whatever. Um, but it was interesting you mentioned Dracula and particularly thinking about Lucy in that. Not our Lucy, the Lucy in Dracula. Uh, not, that I'm, not that I'm saying our Lucy isn't a, a blood-sucking temptress. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but I was quite interested by um, a video I watched on YouTube by Renegade Cuts, where Lee and Thomas divides uh, female monsters into the idea of witch, castrator, and temptress. And that's obviously a, a huge generalization. But I did like his idea that uh, all the fears that men hold about women, you can see in the female monsters. And I quite like this idea that actually a female vampire represents all the things that men are afraid of because they are independent, they're sexy, they've got their own um, sexual appetites, uh, they're happy to feed them. They're sexually mature. This is the, the, the men's fear of a sexually mature um, woman, experienced woman. Absolutely. And I think it's quite quite interesting that a female vampire represents the fears of men rather than necessarily the fears of women. Uh, and I mean, she obviously she'll you know go for you as well if she's a, a vampire, but it is kind of a man's fear. I just thought it was quite an interesting, an interesting balance that you don't necessarily see reflected in any of the other monsters throughout mythology. So we've talked about those monsters that are quite male and quite masculine um, and should theoretically have penises, but don't necessarily. We've talked about female monsters that are absolutely stunningly beautiful or have huge pendulous breasts and are really ugly and covered in warts. And they are obviously monsters that are very, very much based on humanity and the two genders. But there are other monsters out there that don't have any gender at all. Um, and they are far more... <laughs> tentacular i suppose um and they're more bestial um i mean have you guys got any examples um of those kind of monsters that you think defy the genres and are truly monstrous without any reference to humanity whatsoever well the one that i would think would think of is tyler thompson's rosewater where he has these utterly terrifying things that are like kind of like balloon floating mindless things that just come and attack you and honestly when I read that remembering that I often read before bed I was just like okay now I'm gonna have nightmares this is terrifying but the thing is because it was so the way it was described it was so unlike anything natural I guess it, you know we come back to this idea of monstrous being unnatural it's that it it didn't bring to mind anything in the animal kingdom and that to me made it completely genderless and yeah I, I didn't even have an expectation that it might have gender applied to it because it was just so other and I found that really interesting and really kind of refreshing in that it's just this kind of mindless weird thing and that really creeped me out it was yeah it's creepy um but then I was also thinking about a lot of monsters that ought to be kind of genderless, 
you know, you have things like King Kong, obviously he's masculine, and and then Godzilla becomes masculine. And and I was thinking about kaiju films, um, and then like the the kind of the Western interpretation film with Pacific Rim. You have all these monsters that they're just like attacking and lots of fighting, and it's kind of fun, but there's no need to mention gender and there isn't, it isn't mentioned, but at the same time, I don't know if anyone else did this, but I kind of watched that with the assumption that they were masculine, that they were male kaiju, despite the fact that it had, it it wasn't important at all. It made no impact on the storyline. They weren't designed in a specific way that, you know, they didn't have giant dongs just smacking about in the water yeah, so they're basically sexless uh, in any kind of way that we might project on them as their their physical representation. But at the same time, it's really easy to to just go to that masculine default. Well, I was uh, having a think about a few of my favorite um, favorite monsters that I'd seen. Uh, talking about freaking us out, I have to mention Slither, a terrible B movie film with Nathan Fillion. But at the end. The monster is kind of an amalgamation of all the people that it's caught and it's just one big blob with like faces looking out of it and all the people are kind of joined together and it's just really horrible. It's it's a bit like, I think they were going for something like John Carpenter's The Thing but more humanity and I found that really quite disturbing. Um, Oh, you've just reminded me, what about No Face from Spirited Away? Not seen that. I'm embarrassed <gasps> to admit. I know, I know. Megan? Yeah, yeah, terrifying. Utterly terrifying. Like, what? what is it? What, uh, Nobody uh, knows <laughs> what it is. It's it's no face. And and, and the thing is, it, it becomes more monstrous when it, you know, starts eating all the food and then it starts eating all the people. And it reminded me when Charlotte was talking about, you know, it becomes like a kind of amalgamation. It doesn't, no face never, never really changes except that it just becomes, it still, it just becomes like enormous with all the things it swallowed, but it still has the no face mask on it. And even at the end, you don't ever work out like who or what it is. That's completely, that's another example of a genderless monster that kind of freaks you out i mean i saw someone going around as no face at a convention and it really was like i don't know if you were there yep. for that one it might have been yep. um did you mm-hmm. see you see it yeah <laughs> fuck i mean similarly in anime you also have something like in the end of Papika, which um oh that film was interesting but you know by the end there's like an amorphous blob thing and it's all very like it just becomes so other and i guess that 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 does really go back to what a monster is. It is the other. It is the fear of the unknown. And the more weird and out there and and completely beyond our, as you said, our frame of reference, the scarier it is. Mm. And it sounds like that's, it takes a different definition of ugly because we've kind of been, we've been talking about, you know, ugly in terms of how we apply that to other human beings. But this is ugliness without a frame of reference this is this is ugliness um resulting from non-familiarity from complete otherness and maybe that's why we're saying this is it's the true definition of it it's what why we say monsters are ugly um because we can't empathize with them we can't see any 
humanity in them. We can't touch them in any way. Um, and if you can't touch another being, then you have no chance of understanding. Well, I think we've covered about everything that we can cover when it comes to monsters. So if monsters are your thing, then there are plenty out there to choose from. From ancient Greece all the way to space where they can't hear you scream, there's the perfect monster waiting just for you. Worryingly, it seems that society continues to be drawn to ugly monsters or those with physical defects. If those are the kind of monsters that society still finds terrifying, then it's probably about time that society, and maybe even the Oxford English Dictionary, takes a good long look at itself. Thank you for listening. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.